Heard Island. Death notices and other appendices. I've been a couple of months trying to work my notes and bookbound marginalia into an account of Australian Antarctic activities between 1948 and the establishment of Mawson Station on the Antarctic continent in 1954, and it's all over the place. So many books and newspaper clippings have come into my hands, as you would expect when covering the Antarctic exploits of your own nation, that I've struggled to keep the information in sight physically and in mind as a storytelling framework. A few days ago, I realised that by covering the remaining years of Australia's relatively short occupation at Heard Island, I could saw off one branch of an increasingly gnarly historical tree, and I'm really pleased that I chose that path. The Heard Island chronology is a fascinating snapshot of Australian high latitudes intentions and modes in the early 1950s, and the appendectomies on their own would warrant attention, even if the standard surveying, sledging and scientificating didn't form a compelling narrative to me. So this episode, it's all heard. You hear? Her Majesty's Australian ship Labuan, commanded by Captain Dixon once more, made visits to relieve and resupply Anari at Heard and Macquarie Islands in 1949. Fine weather saw the Heard Island unload of 100 tonnes of stores play out in just 14 hours, and the Labuan returned to Melbourne via the Kerguelen Islands nine days early. I can't find much information about the 1949 winterers at Heard Island other than a list of names, so here they are. Bob Allison as officer in charge and medical officer, Ron Oat, John Paddock and Headley Burnett as radio operators, Arthur Burton as diesel mechanic, Graham Chittleborough and Tim Ealy as biologists, Carl Dutois as cook, Andrew Garriak as meteorologist, with Reg Smith and Ossie Warden as Met observers. Australia's Department of National Development, galled by the estimated £1 million the country missed out on by not engaging in whaling and sharing in the 2.3 million barrels of oil deriving from 34,000 Southern Ocean cetaceans the Southern Ocean yielded that year, proposed a complete survey of marine resources to the south of Australia and the Indian Ocean. Whales and seals, both eared and earless, fish and seaweeds, formed part of the study remit. Funding never came through, but Phil Law kept the weather eye on the idea of extraction industries for the duration of his time as director of Anari. The South must pay its way, somehow. Australian coastal whaling at the time took 1,085 whales in 1951, earning Australian businesses £920,000, but the nation had yet to get an oceanic fleet together. In October, Ely, Chittleborough and Paddock made the first crossing of the Winston Glacier as part of their biological survey and seal census. Their foray saw them off base for 10 days all up. Heard Island Winter 1950. Jim McCarthy is OIC and meteorologist and Jack Walsh, Mike Brewer and Pat Maron as weather observers. Peter Young and Les Gibney as biologists. John Gore as radio supervisor, with Leo McGarrigal and Harry Vouse as radio operators, Frank Keating as diesel mechanic and dog handler, Alf Riddell as carpenter, Peter Wayman and Harry Thornton as cooks and storemen, and Sergei Udovikov 
as medical officer. Anari positioned the sled dogs inherited from the Expeditions Polars Francaise from Melbourne Zoo to Heard Island in 1950. Diesel mechanic Frank Keating and Met observer Jack Walsh took on dog care duties, hunting seals on the local beaches for dog food and keeping the dogs fit by harnessing them up and applying their pulling power to moving the seal carcasses clear of the beaches. Excuse me a moment, we've got an albatross passing by. I think anyone that doesn't stop to watch an albatross, I don't know, there's just something wrong there. It's like not appreciating music in any form. Don't make eye contact, move slowly backwards. Gibney and Young made four visits each to Jacka Valley and Cape Gazette, returning each season to resurvey the seal populations. While crossing the Jacker Glacier, a shortcut to Red Island that Gibney and Young discovered, a party comprising Gibney, Marin, Riddell and Gore experienced rock and icefalls from a hanging glacier above them, in a manner reminiscent of that which nearly wiped out the first sledging foray of the first iteration of Operation Tabarin. Gibney reported that perhaps that route best be left to midsummer and to people with very strong nerves. Alf Riddell repaired the already battered accommodations and erected several new edifices, including a recreation room, a seismographic hut, a magnetic observation hut at West Bay, a site featuring less temporal magnetic variability than other sites surveyed, and an emergency shelter come fieldwork accommodation at Saddle Point. He also plumbed in roof guttering to collect rainwater during the warmer months, and while the catchment area was small, the annual precipitation made up for that. He installed an oil-burning aga cooker, bringing an end to three years of kerosene cooking and all the limitations that mode places on your baking, though the world's 100,000 Amish households can dispute me on that if they so choose. Oh, no, wait, they can't listen to this because post-17th century technology. Though I see a bunch of them got out of designing smartphones during a recent test of an emergency communication system in the USA. Hypocrisy within a bigoted religion. Say it ain't so, Joe. Of particular note among the 1950 winterers, Ukraine-born and trained Dr. Yudovikov migrated to Australia as a stateless refugee with wife Taisa and daughter Natalia in August 1949 as part of an agreement between the Australian government and the International Refugee Organisation, an agency of the United Nations established in 1946 to help settle people displaced by the Second World War. The Yudovikovs lived in an immigrant processing camp in the back of nowhere, Western Australia, until Sergei volunteered for the medical officer role at Heard Island, 
hoping the service in the remote setting would curry favour in his attempts to get his medical credentials recognised in Australia, where he wanted to live and practice. Already experiencing a medically exciting year on the island, featuring an ankle broken in the skiing accident, which he said himself, and about a food poisoning, in mid-July 1950, Dr. Udovikov began experiencing abdominal pain, starting in the centre and migrating to the lower right side. Classic appendicitis symptoms, he gave the pain some time to return to the mean, as most symptoms do, but it didn't, and he began mentally preparing himself for auto-surgery, given the poor outlook for an evacuation and the dearth of any other medically trained personnel among the Heard Island party. Biologists Peter Young and Les Gibney landed assistant roles in the proposed surgical team and began practicing operating on the carcasses of recently killed seals before they were cut up for husky food, while Dr. Udovikov, reading medical texts and marking his abdomen up for cutting, set a date and time for the operation, while the Nari management tried frantically to find a ship passing near Heard Island that might make a mercy detour, the Royal Australian Navy having already refused to task a ship, citing a lack of suitable vessels and other duties around the Korean Peninsula taxing their resources. There's precedent for Dr. Yudovikov's proposed self-applied appendectomy and an opportunity for a fascinating digression in Scots-born Queenslander Robert Jock McLaren, a veteran of the First World War and a veterinarian serving with the Australian Imperial Force when Singapore fell to the Japanese Imperial Army in early 1942. 40-year-old McLaren escaped from Changi prisoner of war camp and headed for Kuala Lumpur, where he made contact with the Malayan guerrillas. Betrayed to the Japanese by some arsehole, he was transported to Borneo, but escaped again before his captors finished work on the Sandakan POW camp. And a good thing too, as only six of the two and a half thousand Allied soldiers imprisoned there survived their multi-year ordeal, which culminated in a series of forced marches to Renau that resulted in the bulk of prisoner deaths. McLaren and his fellow escapees made their way to Mindanao in the Philippines and joined American and Filipino guerrillas operating in the jungle. Some of the Australian escapees returned home aboard an American submarine, but McLaren stayed on in the islands where his leadership was needed and where his thirst for revenge against the Japanese, fueled by the thousands of Malay civilian corpses he saw lining every road during his escape from Singapore, could best be sated. His disruptions to Japanese operations proved effective, and the occupiers placed a 70,000 peso personal bounty on his head. While operating in the Mindanao jungle in 1944, McLaren diagnosed the pain in the lower right side of his abdomen as appendicitis, leading him to begin contemplating operating in the Mindanao jungle. With the limited medical facilities on Mindanao in Japanese hands, and unable to evacuate to anywhere in Allied territory with any degree of haste, McLaren boiled some spoons and a razor blade in his cooking pot. With no anaesthetic available, he cut into himself with the razor blade, citing his handiwork with a mirror, taking care to push muscle bundles aside rather than cutting through them, hoping to keep the recovery period short. He used the spoons as separators and excised the inflamed organ without incident. In spite of the lack of antibiotics, he made a full recovery and continued to reconnoitre and attack Japanese installations until VJ Day, 
He received a commission to captain and the military cross and bar for his actions in the boonies and goes down in Australian history as one of the hardest to kill bastards of all time. Back to the 1950 narrative though. One account has Dr. Yudovikov getting as far as lying on the operating table and giving himself a local anaesthetic, while surgical assistants Young and Gibney shaved his groin. The account recounts the doctor losing his nerve at the 11th hour, and he returned to home remedies involving castor oil and coffee grounds in his attempts to ease the inflammation and pain. OIC McCarthy thought Young could perform the surgery with Yudovikov under general anaesthetic, so long as good radio signal kept the biologist in touch with surgeons at home. But Yudovikov refused this option, which is probably a good thing given how patchy the shortwave signal in the Heard Island stood at the time. Two ships, the passenger carrying Port Phillip and the cargo carrying Perthshire, responded to the Inari call for an evacuation, but turned back from their diverted routes due to large seas that taxed their fuel reserves and placed the ships and their crews in danger, and in the case of the Port Phillip, smashed a lot of furniture and saw the Grand Piano escape from its doggings. With the affair making front page news from the kickoff, the Navy stepped in to fill Law's immense relief. But the Navy then tasked the stressed Anari leader with sourcing cold weather clothing for the entire crew of the county class heavy cruiser HMAS Australia brackets to brackets. Law turned two on the task, putting the 36 hours available to him to chasing down every duffel coat, balaclava and pair of fleece-lined gloves Melbourne clothiers could provide and getting them to Princess Pier in time for the departure. Commanded by Captain George Carmichael Oldham and featuring a larger complement of boatwork practice crew than the Port Phillip or the Perthshire, and fully bunkered, and with a load of new electric radiators installed in the berths, and just two Antarctic veterans among the crew, a leading seaman and a laundryman, and short the rum ration which got lost in transit to a Melbourne wharf at short notice in 1950. <laughs> yeah, lost. They lost it. <coughs> the Australia, brackets to brackets, departed Port Melbourne on July the 28th. My birthday, by the way, and that of my good friend and my eldest child's Antarctic travel companion, Dr. Brian Parvo, too. The ship carried two replacement doctors. Dr. Arthur Gwynne, only recently returned from his wintering stint at Macquarie Island, and Dr. Odakar Rek, a Czechoslovakian, Czechoslovakia being a thing at the time, immigrant in a similar situation to that which prompted Dr. Yudovikov to put his hand up for Heard Island in the first place. Meteorologist and veteran OIC of the first Heard Island Anari winter, or Gottli, also joined the ship to provide more granular and insightful local forecasts than the Royal Australian Navy boffins could generate, which turned out a boon as the wind blew 65 knots for a lot of the transit and hit 95 knots with bonus sleep blizzards at Heard Island shortly before the ship arrived. On the 7th of August, the Australia Brackets 2 Brackets lay in the Heard Island offing, breaking the record for the largest ship to visit the site to date at 10,000 tonnes displacement. On the 8th, the wind dropped enough that the ship lowered a cutter, swapping two healthy doctors for one sick one in the resulting 90-minute landing operation. Phil Law arranged a number of luxury touches for his colleagues at the island, including fresh meat and poultry and recent newspapers and magazines. The gracious nature of his gifts, only slightly tarnished by his inclusion of Christmas puddings, 
which I already described in all their suet-laden horror in episode Tumpty Tum. He also arranged for Tyasa Yudovikov to make a recording for her husband in Perth, and he had it broadcast south via shortwave radio from Melbourne. After working a late shift at the immigrant camp hospital, Tyasa and Natalia were driven to Perth for the recording session at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation studio. Spoken in Ukrainian, the message ran, We received the first message of your illness eight days ago. We were very worried. Since then, we have been constantly praying for you. Messages sent regularly to us from Melbourne by the Department of External Affairs telling us that you are a little better have relieved us. Because the Australian government is doing so much to help you, it could not do more for you or for us. We are not so worried. Your mother and father, Natalia and I, do not want you to worry about us because we have received such wonderful sympathy that we do not feel alone in our trouble. Mother is saying prayers for you through each day. Natalia cannot understand your sickness, but she is asking for you to come home to her. We are so thankful to hear that HMAS Australia is going to your aid and to all the Australian people who have tried to help us and expressed their sympathy, especially the Department of External Affairs. For what they are doing for us, we will be thankful all our lives. Because of these kindnesses, we are not finding this ordeal as hard as it could have been. End quote. The recording ended with three-year-old Natalia blowing her father a kiss and asking him to come home soon. Because he recognised it would play well in the women's magazines, and because he wrote so much of the copy himself, Phil Law got Taessa to record the whole thing again in English. Unwilling to let any PR opportunity go through to the keeper, Phil Law petitioned the post office to issue a new and unique cachet stamp reading, Rescue of Serge, brackets, sick, brackets, Udovikov, to add to mail cancelled aboard the ship, its short-run service generating highly sought-after philatelic trophies with a story to tell. Michael Cannon, a journalist for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald newspapers, went south aboard the Australia Brackets 2 Brackets and records a ship hitting a growler sufficiently hard to loosen hull plates. Running repairs and sealed bulkheads applied by a crew war-trained in applying such measures to prevent foundering saw the Australia Brackets 2 Brackets shake off the incident with minimum fuss. Given the hullabaloo some Australian politicians and pundits threw up about the expense of the mission and the preparedness of the ship, recently returned from an expensive and thorough refit but still far from ice strengthened, it's not surprising that his account, published in Cannon's 2022 memoir, didn't receive approval for transmission from Captain Oldham at the time. The damage, extending along six frames below the waterline, and credited to a particularly large wave, was later repaired at the naval dockyards in Sydney. The Royal Australian Navy delivered Dr Yudovikov to Fremantle in Western Australia on the 14th of August, the ship's band playing an instrumental version of When the Ice Worms Nest Again, a bawdy Canadian folk ballad arising in the Klondike Gold Rush era and referencing cooked spaghetti with eyes drawn on it and dropped in travellers' drinks as a gag and, perhaps drawing lyrically on Robert Service's poem, The Ballad of the Iceworm Cocktail. Anari members adopted When the Iceworms Nest Again as an unofficial Heard Island anthem. Fasting and a course of hefty antibiotics saw the inflamed appendix ease up during the transit, and the ship's senior medico, Surgeon Commander C.A. Downward, released Dr. Yudovikov for a month's recuperation 
to regain strength before going under the knife ashore. Given the dramatic coverage of his plight, the sight of Dr. Yudovikov walking unassisted from the ship caused some public and press uproar, leading Phil Law to speculate that the least he could have done was rely on a stretcher for the sake of PR. Immigration and customs officials spent an hour searching the doctor's personal possessions before releasing him, and between this official suspicion and his unexpected ambulations, it's not surprising that my nation, a hotbed of gossipy besoms if ever there was one, speculated wildly about Soviet espionage. Because yeah, that's what spies do. Isolate themselves from all possible information income, and then make a huge spectacle of themselves. A lot of press coverage also mentioned the price of diverting two commercial vessels and tasking the Royal Australian Navy ship to the rescue, with costs estimated in the hundreds of thousands of pounds range. This post hoc financial resentment of humanitarian effort is a common trope in Australian culture, because when the media is done with pulling our heartstrings about a topic, for money, they turn to condemning the expenditure on that same topic, for money. This national reassessment of Antarctic effort financing there put the wind up Phil Law and the Right Honourable Richard Casey, and a decree came down from on high that no medical officer still in possession of an appendix could be sent south on an ARI business. The British Medical Association condemned this edict as unethical, as the ratio of doctors with and without appendices made it inevitable that healthy specimens would need to go under the knife to fit the selection criteria, running counter to contemporary thinking on matters of good medicine. Phil Law boxed around this official injunction by the efficient expedient of ignoring it and demanding otherwise healthy doctors go under the knife if they wanted a slot at an Australian station, and will come back to the matter as other nations pick up on this prophylactic measure in their own Antarctic efforts in future episodes. I reckon I've got about half an hour here before I have to move. The tide's coming in and you don't want to traverse this coast with the water lapping at your heels. And we'll come to why in a bit. Sergei Yudovikov received government approval to practice medicine in Australia, and the Yudovikovs settled in Brisbane, where they had a second daughter, Tatiana. Among the strange little information alleyways I find myself meandering down in preparing my notes for iced coffee episodes are the scans of handwritten documents from government bureaucracy of days gone by. In this case, the student register of West End State School, at which the Yudovikovs enrolled Titania, and from which I find the only online reference to his practising medicine after his time at Heard Island. Tim Bowden's book, The Silence Calling, backs the matter up, recounting a long medical career, though he cites the family as settling in Western Australia. Sergei and Thais's graves are in Mount Gravit Cemetery, regardless where they spent their lives. Amazing the things this series exposes me to. I spent almost a whole eight-hour workday equivalent following the threads of Dr. Yudovikov's story through my bookshelves and online, and I feel every second of that effort stands as time well spent. I'm proud to share as much of Dr. Yudovikov's story as I've been able to unearth, and the only downside of putting in that much energy on one person is I'm reminded how many people I'll never have time to read about in as much detail, or ever hear about, even tangentially and it makes me a little sad. But then you remember that some people are arseholes, and I'm a little less sad. Sometime around then, 
a formal note in a formal context, shifted sovereignty of Heard Island from Britain to Australia. Hey, don't look at me. I didn't write the rules of geography by fiat. I'm just telling you that some stuff was written down and changed, if not the shape of the world, then at least the shape it took in people's minds. cloud of blood in one of the gutters cutting into the rock platform near me. I think it's where a leopard seal took a penguin. And the surge is just preventing it from dissipating. It just sort of sits there. Heard Island, winter 1951. Frank Hannon as meteorologist and officer in charge. Arthur Gies, Bob Dingle and Ken Bott as meteorological observers. Max Downs and Ken Brown as biologists. Nils Lead as radio supervisor and Kevin Johnson and Dave Cheffins as radio operators. Jack Starr as cook and Kevin Cleary as assistant cook and storeman. Hugh Doyle as geophysicist, Peter Lawson as diesel mechanic, Jack Walsh as dog handler, Dr Otto Reck staying on as medical officer during changeover that summer, and a good thing too, but we'll come to that. On February 21st, 1951, while on the return leg from Heard Island, Her Majesty's Australian ship Labuan broke down 140 nautical miles from Fremantle. The ship already experienced a steering gear failure on the way south and hull cracks allowed seawater into the freshwater tanks. Lieutenant Commander Cartwright sailed to the Kerguelens for freshwater halfway through the Heard Island unload. The steering gear failed again on the way north. A machinist improvising a stopgap with refrigerator parts and later receiving a court-martial for drilling in the deck without naval board permission. The engine breakdown coincided with a new crack from port to starboard across the foredeck. The Labuan Southern Ocean career was over. Calm weather and a tug, which arrived on site on the 27th of February, helped the ship reach safety, but the developing mechanical issues, when considered in company with the shortcomings of an LST hull shape in the face of Southern Ocean conditions, saw the Navy pay the Labuan off, and it lay up in Fremantle for four years before going to Hong Kong under tow and the scrapper under gas axe. Mm, snack time. really go a coffee right now but I don't think I'll have time to set up the stove before the tide happens in. Wait to the next spot that I find.
watching the Davilia swaying in the surge. And I find it incredibly beautiful. A lot of early authors thought it looked sinister. But I find it mesmerising. And I only recently realised the origin of its names. Um, the French expedition under de Montdeville. I've grown up with this genus as part of my life in the form of Davilia potatorum along the Victorian coast and later Davilia antarctica around the southern coast of New Zealand and in the sub-Antarctic islands. Leathery straps in the case of Antarctica floating on the surface due to the gas cells in the fronds. Just hypnotic to watch it sway. It's so funny that in spite of knowing that genus since I first took an interest in marine systems, just not twigging the connection to De Montdeville when I was recording the episodes about his expedition. Could be the pronunciation that I was using. I was trying to make French do Spanish stuff with a, a double L making a Y sound. I wonder how I'm going with Yudovikov. Back to the narrative. Maybe ten minutes before I need to move. last episode this series addressed Phil Law's adventures, he sailed aboard the Norcell as Australian observer during the NBSAE. During that voyage, he paid close attention to the approach John Yeaver took to establishing a base in the far south. A good move, given Yeaver's mode, mean and high latitude success rate. But Law felt particularly impressed by the ability of the ship. After the Norcell dropped him in Cape Town, he headed to Europe to seek a similarly capable vessel with which to fulfil his Anari remit. None came to light. Icebreakers proved valuable as the Cold War overwhelmed international focus and all capable examples plied the Arctic both as a show of administration over northern coasts and as sentinels for enemy actions coming over the Great Circle shortcuts available in the north. On returning to Australia, Law made inquiries in North America but the USA and Canada also saw great value in existing fleets of ice-breaking and ice-strengthened ships. Australia was stuck with its crappy Wyatt Earp, and even that couldn't come to the party, as the new owners re-re-re-re-renamed it and set it to work in coastal cargo routes as the Wyuna once more. Philip Law proposed Australia build its own ship with blackjack and hookers, with casinos illegal throughout Australia until 1973, and sex work still operating without protection from criminal law in most Australian states to the date of this episode dropping, he concentrated on the ship bit. The Inari Planning Committee approved the proposal, 
and funds came available for a design by the Australian Shipping Board. Law spent months working on the brief with Chief Naval Architect Claude Barker. Bringing the design to its final form, estimated to cost between seven and eight hundred thousand pounds, just in time to learn that the Danish company J. Lauritsen Lines just built an ice-breaking ship, the Kister Dan, for use in transits between Denmark and Greenland in the boreal summer. Figuring the ship likely to lie idle through the months of the boreal winter, Law wrote to the company's CEO, Knud Lauritsen, seeking charter opportunities. Lauritsen was keen and the two men approached the Inari Planning Committee and the Minister for External Affairs, official and paid position, and Australia and Antarctica advocate, unofficial and unpaid position, Right Honourable Richard Casey. Both the committee and the minister gave the proposal their support and got it through the government hoops necessary to open the Australian federal purse and establish an initial agreement that developed into a relationship that served Australian interests very well for the following three decades. From 1954, the Kister Dan would serve Australia's Antarctic needs between December and March each year the necessary funds came available by federal parliamentary decree. Australian Farmers Transport Limited, already in good stead with Inari having arranged the Totten Charter, I'll explain in a bit, brokered the deal and went on to serve in negotiating similar north-south high-latitude shipping arrangements for Argentine, British, Belgian and South African Antarctic programs into and beyond the IGY. Based on Australian satisfaction with the Danish deal, Expeditions Polaires Francaise subsequently chartered the Luritsen ship Taladan for their Antarctic program, though through their own agents rather than Australian Farmers Transport Limited. Additional canine genetic stock arrived at Heard Island for the 1951 wintering and Jack Walsh stayed on to carry forward his dog care duties, becoming, I think, the first of only a few Anari members to stay south for consecutive winters, at least until the COVID pandemic threw its spanner in the works. That year, physicist Doyle kicked off a seismic measurement series that ran until 1954 and started the absolute and variometric magnetic measurements series at West Bay which continued until the Inari presence on the island ended. Changing out recording traces in the magnetometer and variometer required a three kilometre trek each way. The coastal path was easy to follow, even in poor weather, but a southwesterly blizzard might give a physicist reason to place their own safety over data continuity. Wash my scientific mouth out with Greg's instant coffee powder for giving the idea voice. In the early months of that year's occupation, the biologists, always in company with another Winter Party member, made six bird census and banding forays, their efforts pioneering several of the routes that eventually led to the first successful terrestrial circumnavigation of the island. In late April, Downs, Brown, Geese and Star visited Sydney Cove on Red Island by boat, with Frank Hannon, Nils Lead and Peter Lawson acting as boat crew. They travelled in a dinghy powered by an outboard motor, towing a smaller dinghy loaded with equipment and stores. Surf swamped both boats and gave the outboard motor a lot to think about in terms of aspirated salt water. They dragged the cargo dinghy ashore, but the larger vessel stranded on a sandbar 
and the best they could secure it was to extend its painter line and make it fast on the beach. The boat crew squelched back to Atlas Cove, crossing the treacherous ice slopes in Jacka Valley in sodden sea boots and without any ice traverse equipment. The following day, the shore party managed to draw the larger dinghy ashore, a task made easier by the boat springing one of its hull planks and allowing the water out. Though any hole that lets water out of a boat under its own weight will also let water into a boat under its own weight and leads a person to question at what point a boat stops being a boat and becomes a bunch of neatly arranged driftwood. I figure it's about that point. The shore party cached food and fuel under a rock overhang, built a tent platform, collected insects, counted seals and headed back to Atlas Cove on foot. I don't think that was penguin blood. There's way too much of it coming up this gutter. Got to have been something bigger. Got to have bled for a long time. Can't be far away. I wouldn't be surprised if I come across a large carcass in my meanderings today. On May 10th, Brown, Downs and Dingle, equipped with crampons, ice axes and alpine rope, returned to Red Island, nearly dying in an avalanche that caught them beneath a hanging glacier in the Jacka Valley. They took what cover the topography offered, but it was luck more than method that saw them avoid a squishing. At Sydney Cove, Dingle worked to push the neatly arranged driftwood back over the threshold beyond which it once more became a boat while the biologists completed their collecting. They drew the restored dinghy to a safe place well up shore and returned to Atlas Cove on foot the following day without further gravity-induced excitement. Later that month, nine men returned to Sydney Cove in the cutter, determined to tow both dinghies back to Atlas Cove and to have done with Red Island for the year. Heavy surf precluded landing the cutter, so Wreck and Brown swam ashore with a line by which to haul the dinghies out to sea. They loaded the smaller craft with the stores and equipment remaining in the camp. Meanwhile, the cutter's engine cut out and didn't restart until the boat bobbed its seven occupants quite close to a rocky shore at the end of the beach. Concerned about the engine's reliability, they towed the smaller dinghy clear of the beach and motored back to Atlas Cove, thinking they could return when the swell dropped to retrieve the larger boat. Gales through the following weeks powered seas big enough to reach the dinghy high up the shore, and by the time the weather allowed a return in the cutter, the former boat only showed up as poorly organised driftwood spread along the length of the beach. In June, Brown, Doyle and Leed visited Saddle Point in the cutter. 
They spent six days making biological collections, surveying winter seal populations, banding birds and reconnoitering an upland route back to Atlas Cove. They didn't find the route they sought, but they did discover that Mechanics Bay, on the eastern shore of Saddle Point, offered reliably sheltered operations when swell and ice denied access to the other side, and the cutter picked them up there. In late July, biologists Downs and Brown and Med Observer Geese departed the huts for a traverse to the penguin colonies at Long Beach on the far side of the island, spending two weeks in the frigid winter conditions. Their tent blew out at the ends and eventually they couldn't even light their stove. They did ascend to 1,100 metres to try to spot useful routes, but thirst, cold, broken crampons and gathering darkness precluded further exploration. They reached the Atlas Cove huts two hours after nightfall. In September, successive teams of up to 10 men worked with dog teams for five days to establish a hut at an altitude of 500 metres next to the Abbott Smith Glacier. No sign of a depot laid at the site the previous year remained. They guide the hut down against winds and marked the route to it with transits of marker poles so people in need of its shelter and contents might find it in the sort of adverse conditions that made them need its shelter and contents. These measures proved moot in just six months as the snows rose up around both the hut and the marker poles leading to it and rendered both impossible to find. On the 7th of October, Cook Jack Starr took ill with pain in the lower abdomen, tending to the right side. Dr Reck diagnosed appendicitis and the acute nature of the pain and its rapidly increasing intensity indicated surgery as necessary long before any relief vessel could reach Heard Island, even if Phil Law could convince the Navy or the Merchant Service to send one. The rec room, not named in honour of the physician about to perform surgery in it, served as a surgery. Nils Lead and Ken Brown served as surgical assistants, having received three weeks training as theatre assistants at Royal Melbourne Hospital at Phil Law's insistence that each wintering party should carry some secondary medical expertise. Max Downs looked after the instruments and Frank Hannon managed the anaesthetic, while Kevin Johnson acted as gopher. The rec room and its attendant surgery team received hard scrubbing with Lysol and alcohol, much to the chagrin of the rest of the camp who had other plans for the ethanol supply and perhaps for the Lysol too, as Australians will ferment and drink almost anything. Bespoke surgical masks kept the rampant beardage out of sight and Starr commented on the overall visual improvement of his colleagues as he took centre stage as calmly as someone about to lose consciousness and receive cuts to the flesh might manage in a remote setting. Pentothol in the veins and ether on a gauze mask took the cook to sleepy bobos, but when Dr. Reck applied the scalpel, Starr's knees spasmed upward in a literal knee-jerk reaction. The cook's substantial beard prevented effective coverage with a Schimmelbusch mask. With the surgery team likely receiving more anaesthetic than is generally deemed good for people with an important job to do, Hannon boosted the ether application and, over the course of a full hour, sent the cook into a state of unconsciousness deep enough to preclude further autonomous attempts at self-defence, and the operation played out to completion and complete success after a further three hours of tense activity. 
the offending organ hitting the floor when Dr. Reck threw the excised element down with heartfelt venom. The cook announced his emergence from unconsciousness with a single profanity. I'm not often proud to be Australian, but there are moments. Ethan pneumonia and a misplaced saline drip caused some post-surgery problems, but Starr returned to galley duties at the end of the month. Everyone on base feeling relief at his survival, and because the food quality improved after three weeks of everyone trying their hand as cook in rotation. In one of many coincidences preparing this episode led me to, Robert DeGraw, the audiobook producer at Vision Australia that taught me to speak into a microphone as I'm doing now, brought to my attention a photo album and some artefacts related to Australians in Antarctica, inherited by a friend of a friend of a friend. Robert managed to borrow the material and invited me over to have a look. The photographs arose from OIC Frank Hannon's 1951 stay at Heard Island and his subsequent time at Mawson Station. You can see the surgery team gowned up, their beards barely constrained by their bespoke surgical masks of wound gauze, as Star went under the knife. Bowden's book credits the image to meteorologist Bob Dingle. I can see Hannon made it to Ross Island at some point, but that's a story to unravel at some future date, likely associated with the IGY. Among the artefacts numbered the first polar medal I ever saw up close. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, Queen of this realm and of her other realms and territories, Head of the Commonwealth Defender of the Faith, looking far younger than I can ever remember her, on the obverse, and a man-hauling party departing the discovery from Hut Point on the reverse. I'm grateful to Robert for alerting me to the treasure trove of images and items, and I examine the photos he took of the photos regularly to try to pick the chronology, as the images from Heard Island, Horseshoe Bay and Ross Island intermingle on a thematic basis rather than a temporal one, and to decipher what information they offer beyond that available in written accounts of the experiences they document. In particular, there's a picture of a helicopter on a bluff that has me baffled, because it's either a Westland Whirlwind, a Sikorsky S-55, or a Mil-4. They all look akin at a distance, and knowing which factory it came from in which country will likely be key to understanding when and where someone captured the image. At this time, Alan Campbell Drury trained some expeditioners as photographers and cinematographers, and while they received credit for their images, Anari held the copyright and the negatives. I suspect many fellow expeditioners kept albums of similar, if not the same, array of images as Frank Hannon. Big beards, elephant seals, penguins of several species, de Havilland Canada beavers and Oster AOPs, and the Taladan. Lots to unlock in passing out where and when the events depicted took place. Biologist Brown, Med Observer Dingle, and Radio Supervisor Lead made the first complete circumnavigation of the island. Starting in late November, the project took them two weeks. They made extensive use of the various refuge huts established around the island at that point, and by the time they returned to Atlas Cove, their notes featured enough survey measurements and sketches to complete the first topo map of the island. 
extensive seal, bird and flora distributions finally came into focus and a large collection of geological, entomological and botanical specimens rounded out the scientific aspects of their achievement. Heard Ireland, 1952. Les Gibney returning as biologist and officer in charge. Ray Boyland as meteorologist with Reg Frost, Ken Hall and Laurie Atkinson as med observers. Paul Tessier as cook with Peter Brown as assistant cook and storeman. Alan Perryman as radio supervisor and Richard Hoseason and Jim Carr as radio operators. Jeff Faulkner as medical officer. Alistair Forbes, a merchant navy veteran and Alsatian breeder from Scotland, serving as dog handler. Lindsay Ingle as geophysicist and John Russell as engineer. For the 1952 and 1953 resupply visits to Heard and Macquarie Islands, Anari chartered the Totten, which already featured in episodes 141 and 142 about the French return south. The Norwegian sealer was due to carry the EPF crews back to Europe, but quick negotiations by Jerry Donovan, who took leadership of the island relief voyages, while Philip Law fully immersed himself in preparations for an Australian continental base, saw the French happily fly their personnel home at less expense, allowing Inari to pick up where their charter left off. The Totten wasn't able to fit the Duck W amphibious vehicles previously used to transfer people and stores from ship to shore and vice versa during the Labuan voyages. Instead, Dick Thompson and Lem Macy applied a mode used extensively by the US Navy during the Second World War. Inflatable pontoon spans capped with wooden decking laid end to end to form a flexible bridge between ship and shore. This proved workable at both island sites and served for the duration of the Totten's secondment to Australian charters and well beyond that span with other vessels. Going to finish up there for now. Back to it later on. Hey, uh, it's Matt here, just dropping in from the future with some closing notes. I contacted George Raab, professional musician and the talent and drive behind the Geologic podcast, for some help with translating Ukrainian text on a headstone for this episode. While writing my email request, I noted that I intended giving some time to Robert Jock McLaren in this episode of my series, and asked if that hard-as-nails auto-appendectoma ever featured in the Rupert McClanahan's Indestructible Bastards segment of George's series. Rupert gave jock coverage in episode 578 of the Geologic podcast. I'll link to George's website and to that specific episode in my notes on the Ice Coffee WordPress site. But I'm so eager for you to hear why I've listened to Mr. Fraub's output for the past decade. I asked him to ask Rupert for permission to include their take on Jock McLaren's indestructibility in my output, and permission was granted. Take it away, the guy who says, take it away, Rupert. Tis time once again for a Rupert McLanahan's bastards who wouldn't die. 100% true stories of indestructible bastards. Take it away, 
Rupert. Well, thank you. This week's uh, indestructible bastard is Robert Jock McLaren. By 1942, Robert Jock McLaren had already escaped from a prison camp in Singapore, fought for weeks with local guerrillas, been betrayed to the Japanese by a double-crossing comrade, and been interned in a high-security prison camp in Borneo. Books have been written about Liss, but McLaren was just getting started. McLaren had been a teenage cavalryman during the First World War before immigrating to Australia and settling down to a quiet life in Queensland. When the Second World War broke out, the middle-aged veterinarian was one of the first to sign up. Captured by the Japanese after the fall of Malaya, McLaren staged his first breakout from Singapore's notorious Changi Prison. His recapture didn't dent his determination to escape. The move to Borneo just meant he was that much closer to home. He quickly teamed up with someone as determined to escape as he was, a local Chinese man known as Johnny Funk, who had been brutally tortured by the Japanese. Together, Jock and Johnny broke out of prison and trekked to the coast. They then island-hopped for 270 miles across the Pacific in a hollowed-out log, fighting running battles with the Japanese along the way before landing safely on the Philippine island of Mindanao. Unfortunately, the island had already fallen to the Japanese, and McLaren had developed appendicitis. Hunted by the Japanese, and with no way to reach a doctor, McLaren had to make a desperate decision. He had a mirror, a sharp pocket knife, some jungle fibers to stitch a wound, and absolutely no anesthetic. He decided he was going to have to take out his own appendix. The operation took four and a half hours. Years later, when receiving the military cross, McLaren was asked about the operation. His answer was predictably laconic. It was hell, he said, but I came through all right. Two days after the surgery, McLaren was on his feet, fleeing the Japanese again. He spent the rest of the war as a guerrilla in the Philippines, most of it in command of an old whaling boat called The Bastard. He packed the boat full of mortars and machine guns and used it to sail into heavily guarded Japanese ports, spray bullets everywhere, and then run for it before anyone could work out what the hell was going on. Despite a huge reward, he was never caught, possibly because everyone was terrified of the notorious rebel leader known to leave severed appendices in his wake. Robert Jock McLaren is this week's indestructible bastard. My name is Rupert McClanahan, reminding you to stay indestructible. Please? All right, friends, uh, the Philadelphia Funk Authority has two public shows this weekend. Um... Closing out this episode is Minwee's 2004 track, The Sum of Us. In this case, the version from The Guns EP. This song has travelled with me since I bought the EP in 2006, shortly before leaving New Zealand and it's one of the few pieces of music that can consistently get me dancing. There's a really sweet version of the track on YouTube featuring a claymation story that is just pure New Zealand in its autodidactism and its hyper-reality. I often play it on loop when I'm writing or editing. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and furthermore I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Mearsham doesn't deserve power over the remote to the telly, let alone over other people at high latitudes.